0: I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome to the Breakfast Show the Voice of Islam. And, uh, myself and uh, Mr. and And uh, The time is uh, three minutes past seven and uh, it's Friday, the 15th of July, 2022. As always, we have a very packed program this morning uh, on the Breakfast Show. Uh, breakfast Show has uh, listeners regular listeners wouldn't know, is uh, an interactive broadcast. It means that uh, listeners have the opportunity to join in any discussions taking place during the course of the program. All you need to do is to pick up the phone, uh, and dial zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, and share your thoughts uh, with us. Uh, give that number again, 02086877878. Uh, you can uh, use the more modern method of communicating if you want, the Twitter uh, Voice of Islam UK is a Twitter handle, so you can uh, let us know your thoughts through that medium if you want. Um, if you're in a few minutes time we'll uh, have the rundown of the weather, um, no guessing as to what uh, that holds for us, uh, hot, hot, maybe very hot. Um, and then we'll be going uh, uh, to examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days. We won't be spending too much time on each, but trying to rattle through as many as we can during the first half hour. And as I mentioned before, if you want to make your UUIs known, uh, then please do uh, take um, opportunity or to, to benefit or try to draw benefit from the facility available and um, uh, letting us know. 208 uh, is uh, the number to dial. Uh, The Twitter handle is Voice of Islam UK. Now, those who are familiar with the uh, the show will know that we usually uh, pick on two main topics that uh, we uh, pick uh, that uh, we deal with in some detail. Now, today or this morning, the first one that we picked up relates to something that uh, is increasingly um, apparent. especially due to this cost-of-living crisis, uh, which is stress. Uh, It is not uh, a healthy factor, uh, particularly for aging of the immune system, so we're told, uh, which in turn can result in further ailments like cancer, cardiovascular disease, etc. So we'll be covering this particular topic, this topic about stress, under the heading Stress Exposure and Accelerated Immune Aging. So if you want to know what immune aging is, then make sure that you are tuned in between 7.30 to 8.15 when we're we'll considering that particular topic. And for that uh, item, we'll be joined by David Smithson. He's an operations director at www.anxietyuk.org.uk. Uh, and uh, hopefully he'll be able to help us understand this issue better. Uh, we'll also be able to speak to, we hope, anyway, uh, to the Chief distressing Officer at the Stress Management Society, and uh, that's Neil Shah. And uh, finally, uh, we'll be drawing on the expertise of Alison Pei. Uh, now, Alison is the Managing Director at Mental Health at Work, uh, so she, she'll be uh, sharing her thoughts on uh, this particular issue. Uh, so all that between 7.30 to 8.15. Now, moving on... Uh, The second main topic uh, that we hope to uh, draw uh, your attention on and uh, discuss is about the very vexed and much debated question, certainly among the three major religions of the world, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, regarding the fate of Jesus on the the crucifixion. Uh, The topic we'll be dealing with is, uh, was Jesus crucified? Archaeological uh, discovery says he was. Uh, so we'll be looking at this uh, particular topic uh, from Mary angles and uh, discussing it with the research fellow in the Faculty of Theology and Religion, Edward David. And uh, we also hope to be joined by Professor David Thomas uh, later on in the course of this program. Uh, he's from the University of uh, Birmingham and uh, hopefully he'll lend his thoughts uh, on this particular topic uh, as well. So lots to do, uh, lots to cover. And as always we should have the invaluable input um, regarding the Islamic angle to all this um, because this is the voice of Islam and there is in fact uh, something always of relevance that we can uh, we can put forward and put across uh, from the uh, teachings of Islam. Now. Um, uh, moving on, let's go to uh, the weather. The weather at the moment, um, well, as I mentioned earlier, it seems to be um, hot or hotter. Uh, but um, the broadca- the um, forecast from the BBC uh, weather service is saying that today there will be cloud and showers over northern areas uh, that will sink south eastwards through the day, turning lighter and patchier outside of this it will be dry and sunny and very warm in the south east so certainly the south east is uh, to be uh, expecting something quite dry uh, whereas there is wet weather in the northern parts of the country this evening um, any showers that uh, may have appeared in the in other parts of the uk will clear uh, it will it will be dry, clear and settled for most, although a few patches of mist and fog may form. Cloudy in the far north, however, with spells of uh, rain moving in. Um, I, we do have, I'm just trying to see uh, if we can uh, uh, bring in uh, Mr. Sharif Banu, but uh, I am not sure. As As-salamu Can you hear
1: me? I can
0: hear you. as How are you, sir?
1: Alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, I am good, thank you. Good, okay.
0: Um, we're now in the part of the program, Sharif, we're, um, we're looking at um, uh, news items that are circulating around in the wider uh, media. Uh, anything that's caught your eye that you want to see? Well, most,
1: most of the um, daily papers today um, seems to be tackling the um, leadership race for the next prime minister for the UK, mm. and uh, the rival between Lee truss and um, and the others, um, Rishi Sunak and and the favourites, and um, and seems to be that's been the headlines that's been in most of the papers, and the times gone with boosts for Trust in bitter struggle with Mordaunt. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, the, the the race for the leadership as is truly underway, mm. with Rishi Sunak being the favourite. Right at the
0: moment, he's favourite among uh, the MPs, but uh, polls suggest that he's not uh, too popular among uh, the exactly. uh, the uh, uh, the conservative membership, and that no. he that he will lose against anyone he comes across. I, I think there was one person that he would win. I think maybe it was against um, uh, the former health secretary, wasn't it? Uh, mm. Yes. i will forget his name. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, uh, um, and do you think that the um, racists turn a bit nasty? Uh, there were a lot of um, um, accusations against uh, Penny Mordant who's been a surprise candidate in this, from uh, one of Liz uh, Liz Truss's supporters, uh, wasn't there?
1: Um, I, I haven't caught up with that yet, so I'm not too sure.
0: Okay. Apparently, um, um, the uh, the. The person who organised it all, Brexit. I'm very. Uh, I'm at that age where I remember where I t- tend to remember faces, but I can't remember names. Uh, but uh, she's been accused of not uh, being um, uh, well organised um, um, in in respect of a brief. And uh, when uh, the Lord Frost. I've just remembered Lord Frost is the one who made the accusation about uh, Penny Morden that she was uh, often, well, at times not to be found. Uh, She wasn't on top of her brief and wouldn't communicate what he wanted as the leader of the negotiation pack uh, to be communicated to the EU and he he asked for her to be removed. So he's already now uh, uh, marched in. With uh, criticism of uh, Penny Morgan in order to damage her chances, because he's putting her uh, List, trust, that's happened. And then uh, there are questions that are being raised among MPs publicly about uh, the um, the candidacy and the um, uh, the abilities of of others as well. So it seems to be turning a bit. Uh, uh, not so friendly as it as it as it started, um, um,
1: and it does, and we see that time and time again that whenever these um, candidacy race happens, the candidate seems to at one point or the other turn on each other. We saw it during the campaign for Theresa May, we saw it in them um, um, in the Labour Party, and now we're seeing it again in this in this campaign. mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, we are going to be seeing debates soon. Uh, Apparently there's one on Sunday by ITV. Sky News have also, um, I think, organized a debate. I don't know what what time that is exactly. So um, that's going to throw up, uh, I'm sure, um, some some changes in how this election is, uh, the trajectory of this uh, election. Um, so we'll see how that uh, and the announcement uh, of, of who the winner is going to be made on the 5th of September isn't it um, yes so um, what what is your assessment do you think um, who do you think uh, will get to the top two
1: um, I'm i I'm not entirely sure yet because mm. Rishi Sunak and Morden seem to still be the front runners mm. but um, there could be Liz Truss in the race mm. and, but she's kind of catching up and she's lost a little bit of um, momentum to just put it that way yeah. um, but it'll be between those three in my opinion yeah. and one of them will edge forward depending on how they fare in um, in the debate in the, yeah. in the next few weeks.
2: Yeah.
0: And uh, Liz uh, Truss got a boost in she yesterday because uh, one of the candidates that dropped out uh, Suella Breverman has yeah. uh, has pledged her support for, for Liz and it's expected that a lot of her supporters may well go go over to Liz as opposed to Penny Mordant. Um, yeah. So we'll see um, what happens there. As far as other news is concerned, um, what uh, attracted my eye was um, this uh, uh, item about Bill Gates uh, shedding his wealth Uh, It's the news story that billionaire Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world, apparently he was fourth uh, uh, last time in the Forbes list of the richest people in the world. um, He's pledging to become poorer by giving away 20 billion pounds. That's equivalent to 70, sorry, 20 billion dollars. It's equivalent to 17 billion pounds. And he's giving that away to charity. Uh, It's one of his uh, philanthropic funds. It will only make a... A relatively small dent in his 118 billion fortune, uh, and still leave him, leave him with a staggering 98 billion dollars, which is more than you and I could uh, spend in a lifetime, no matter how luxurious our lifestyle. Uh, Mr. Gates said that he felt he had an obligation to return his resources to society, uh, which is a noble aim. Uh, His foundation, the Gates Foundation, supports works in countries to eradicate diseases such as malaria, improve education, and tackle poor sanitation. Uh, It was thought to be the world's largest charitable foundation in 2020, uh, holding uh, 49 nearly $50 billion in assets, and is backed by other wealthy benefactors, uh, such as uh, billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Uh, although the foundation has done good work, some have raised concerns about ethics of a private endeavor wielding such great influence. The foundation is the largest private donor to the World Health Organization, second only to the U.S. with its annual donation of uh, in uh, in 2018 that exceeded that. Apparently, our concerns about this uh, became more pointed after President Donald Trump sent to to uh, pull U.S. funding. Um, Mr. Gates uh, held Forbes title of the richest person in the world between 1995 and 2010. And again from 2013 and 2017, he really wants to get off that uh, um, richest list uh, if he can. Um, So that's uh, uh, in in many ways a commendable effort uh, that he's making. Uh, As far as Islamic point of view is uh, concerned, giving to charity, uh, it has to to be said, um, no surprise, is a virtuous act, uh, not only for the wealthy, but for anyone who can spare something. It is recorded that um, when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, first to Medina during the hijrah, uh, that is the migration from Makkah to, uh, to Medina, he advised believers us uh, three things. One was to be uh, regular in prayers. Another was to be uh, remain in, uh, in the remembrance of Allah. And the third was to give in charity. Uh, for charity, he said, can save you from from the fire of hell. And uh, there are other sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that also talk about the virtue of uh, charity. In uh, one uh, collection of these, uh, it is recorded that he said that. Uh, guard yourself from the hellfire, even with half of a date in charity. So even if you have a sliver of a date uh, and you can give that in charity, give it in charity because it can guard you against hellfire. And he says that... uh, uh, And another there's another um, saying as well, uh, if I can find it. Yes, uh, this is uh, another report that um, a person came to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he says uh, he asked which charity is the most superior reward, and the Holy Prophet peace be upon him replied, "The uh, charity which uh, I am talking about, uh, the the best uh, kind of charity, the charity which you practice while you are healthy, niggardly, and afraid of poverty, and wish to become wealthy. So it is charity offered in that state that his um, that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him saying, is more meritorious. Do not delay it." To the time of approaching death and then say give so much to such and such and so much to such and such. The only prophet peace be upon him is uh, trying to um, impress upon uh, the questioner about the urgency of uh, giving, giving in charity and uh, the virtue that it holds. So uh, Mr. Gates, uh, in doing uh, what he is doing, is doing the right thing. He may not be uh, strapped for cash uh, and uh, uh, be uh, one of, among those uh, who will be participating in the most ch- superior of uh, uh, this act of charity, but at least he's giving uh, such a large amount of, uh, in in this way, and uh, through that, be helping to alleviate the suffering of uh, so many. So it's a virtue, a virtuous act, and something that uh, I think that uh, all listening to the voice of Islam would certainly support. Um, Right. Um, Is there uh, anything that you want to um, um, chip in with, um, Um, Mr. Bernou?
1: The the one of the news that caught my eye this morning is kind of in line with the weather that we were discussing earlier. So the NHS is facing a surge in demand amid extreme weather
2: warning. Mm, mm.
1: So the BBC is reporting that the NHS is preparing for a surge in demand from people affected by rising temperatures in England and Wales. This is where we're expecting a rise in the temperature from Sunday to Tuesday um, from about um, 35 degrees to 39 degrees. Mm. It means that there could be a danger to life or potential serious illness. And the cabinet office minister, Kit Malthouse said, the first line defense was behavioral change. And the key thing was to prepare the government services. Speaking of the meeting of the government's COBRA emergency committee, he said, it was critical that people to look out for the most vulnerable groups. Mm. Weather forecast suggests that mid to high thirties for the weekend, but Morehouse warned that there was a, f- a smaller possibility that could exceed could exceed that and possibly hit forty degrees, which could be an all-time record. Mm. Mm. So um, we're seeing that the, the rise up over the weekend and especially Monday, Tuesday, the temperature could soar up between 35 to 39 and up to 40 in certain places. And this is where we really need to be careful. We really need to look out for our children, our parents, grandparents, anyone who falls under the vulnerable um, group category mm. to ensure that they are not affected by them, They're drinking plenty of water. They're staying hydrated. Mm. They're not spending a um, large amount of time in the sun. And one thing I'd add also is People who have pets, dogs or cats, need to make sure that they are not also spending time because we see a rise of, in animals being affected by that or being left in the car hmm. um, while people are shopping. And they also, Islam teaches us kindness towards not only human beings but also towards animals. Yeah. So we should be careful about how we treat our pets and how we look after them, especially when extreme weather um, like this hits us.
0: Yes, certainly, and people are advised to find shade and avoid exposure to the sun during the middle of the day. I was um, quite—I—I did come across that story, and uh, it surprised me that more than two thousand five hundred heat-related deaths were recorded uh, in the summer of twenty twenty two years ago. So, and uh, it's said that the elderly are especially vulnerable. And so you know this is something that we should take seriously. Uh, uh, although um, I, I, I don't know, um, I I was born in Africa, so this kind of heat uh, is not unusual, uh, <laughs> <laughs> especially in the coast in Mombasa where uh, I did live for two years. Um, but uh, here, we're because we are unaccustomed to such heat, uh, it become it comes as a shock, doesn't it? Especially when you're it so does. used to you're so used to wet and uh, windy weather, suddenly when it when you uh, discover the sun, uh, it comes as a shock, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it it
1: mm. does. It does. Mm. So I I was I was raised in Mauritius, and yeah. um, but somehow the heat here still affects me. Anything uh-huh. above thirty, I have like no, I can't handle it.
0: Is it because you're acclimatized? Is it because you're I climatized am, here? Yes. yeah. Yeah, very acclimatized yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. 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 So this is always the issue, isn't it? Um, there is uh, this uh, story that uh, is going on. It's about the um, uh, Sri Lankan crisis. It's uh, been building up for some time. Inflation uh, was being registered at over fifty percent. I mean, we're complaining about uh, what's happening here when uh, inflation is reaching uh, just about reaching double digits. But uh, 50% there is what is being borne by the people. Uh, prices getting out of control, long queues at petrol stations, people having little to sustain themselves. And not surprisingly, riots have erupted in that island state. Uh, and amidst all this, uh, there are accusations that are being made of the ruling class, uh, accusations of corruption and uh, the uh, usurping of uh, resources by, uh, by the elite for their selfish needs. Uh, the president, uh, got by, uh, Raja Rajabaksa, and his family have come in for particular criticism. His resident has been uh, ran, not ransacked, but attacked by protesters, who have uh, taken to breaking in using his... I mean, this footage was uh, quite widely broadcast on, uh, on, on news uh, news uh, news uh, outlets. Our protesters are demanding his resignations, or were demanding his resignation, uh, which the president resisted for, for a while. Uh, and instead, he fled to the Maldives and in, installed uh, uh, the um, uh, pr- Prime Minister, I think Ranil Wikamasinga as acting president. Uh, it's not been enough to quell the masses who are still uh, paying for his or were still paying for his uh, exit. And eventually Mr. Rajapaksa did uh, in fact, resign uh, not on Wednesday, as he'd promised to, but yesterday. And uh, it is thought that he wanted uh, to remain out of the country as president, so he could claim immunity from prosecution, and probably he was seeking assurances, and that's what delayed, uh, from a third country, that he would not won't be extradited where, when that immunity lapses after his resignation, and that's probably why it was delayed for about 24 hours. But 24 hours is not much in the uh, uh, much of a delay in the uh, broader um, um, sight of things. Anyway. Meanwhile, the misery of the nation continues. It has a foreign uh, debt that exceeds $50 billion, uh, which it can't pay unless it can uh, get agreement to restructure its repayments. Its ability to pay has not been helped by the impact of the pandemic and the decimation of its uh, tourist trade. Uh, Rising fuel prices and the printing of money is simply added to the crisis. Really, changing leadership will not be enough. Anyone who takes the reins of this nation has a heap of problems to deal with, along with an impatient public having to resort to protests, some turning violent, uh, demanding change uh, to a better future uh, quickly. But I understand the latest news is that the martial law has been imposed and uh, um, orders have been given to the security forces. to. Um, to be more um, vigilant in stopping people from protesting. So I don't know how that story is going to unfold, but it is unfortunate what's happening there. Um, We normally also cover, and this I forgot to mention uh, before, uh, the news that uh, has featured in the activities of the Amdi Muslim community. And one major event that took place was... um, the International Ministerial Conference on Freedom of Religion or Belief uh, 2022. This was uh, held at the Queen Elizabeth II uh, Center in London. It wasn't organized by the Amda Muslim Community, it was organized by the UK government and was aimed at urging increased global action on freedom of religion and belief. Uh, It brought together governments, parliamentarians, faith representatives and civil society. It happened on the 5th of July, um, so only um, uh, um, 10 days ago. Uh, the opening session also included messages from uh, His Royal Highness the uh, Prince of Wales and the British Prime Minister, among other dignitaries and faith leaders. Uh, His Holiness, uh, uh, the, the current uh, head of the Amdi Muslim community, as Mizam Suri Ahmed, also uh, g- uh, gave a message and uh, this uh, message essentially outlined the chronic teachings on freedom of religion and uh, drew attention uh, of the participants towards the importance of people recognizing the Creator and bringing about true lasting peace. So the importance of recognizing uh, uh, the Creator so that uh, in order to usher in uh, a lasting peace. His Holiness said "The freedom of religion, I quote, freedom of religion and belief are core human rights that must be uh, preserved and protected for everyone and everywhere. Though we are living in an uh, increasingly secularized world uh, in which uh, people are moving away from religion, many millions of people around the world continue to adhere to religious values, and it is essential that they are able to live their lives according to their beliefs and convictions. And his own also said that the Amli Muslim community has itself been the victim of grave religious persecution to the extent that obnoxious laws have been enacted against uh, the community, preventing members from professing and practicing their basic religious beliefs. Over a period of many decades, Amli Muslims have been mercilessly targeted only because of their religious beliefs, and many have lost their lives as a result of utterly inhumane and barbaric attacks by religious extremists. And uh, his ownness went on to speak about the emphasis uh, the Holy Quran lays on the protection of religious freedom. He said that Allah the Almighty has an enshrined freedom of belief and freedom of conscience to such an extent that the Holy Quran states that permission to use force is only permitted in response to those who seek to eliminate religion from the world. Not just Islam, but all religion, from any religion from the world. In fact, the Holy Quran categorically states that if one does not respond forcefully to those who seek to destroy religion, then no church, synagogue, temple, mosque, or any other place of worship where the name of God is recited will remain safe. Hence, the Holy Quran has made it the religious duty of Muslims to protect the rights of people of all faiths and made freedom of belief a cornerstone of our religion. So those are words of his ownness, Azamizam uh, Asuram. And, then if, and uh, one of the last things he said, that uh, as a religious person, uh, his ownness says that it is my heartfelt belief that true freedom and lasting peace in the world is, only, is not possible uh, until mankind comes to recognize his creator and fulfills uh, His Creator's rights and acts upon His Creator's commandments. Whether religiously inclined or not, we must recognize that there is one God who is the Creator and whose hands lie all of creation. And so it is our duty to fulfill His rights and that of all humanity." Um, So, very wise words, I'm sure you'll agree. Um, and as mentioned before, if there is any comment that you want to make on any of the issues that we may be discussing, then please feel free to ring in. The number is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can use Twitter. The Twitter handle is uh, Voice of Islam UK. Why not share your thoughts on uh, what we have been talking about? Uh, with the rest of uh, our listeners. It'd be good to hear from you. So anyway, we have to press ahead and uh, we're going to go for a very short break. After that break, we'll be coming back and Mr. Shri Banu will be telling us about the first main um, topic that we're going to be discussing, which is about stress exposure and accelerated immune ageing.
3: You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet, 24 hours a day.
0: Peace be upon you, good morning. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show of the of Islam with myself and Mr Shri Banu. The time is 7.33 and it's Friday the 15th of July 2022. As mentioned before this short break, we are going to be now looking at the first main item that we're going to be dealing with. It's about stress exposure and accelerated immune ageing And Mr. Banu is going to take us through this. Thank you very much, Mr. Banu. All yours.
1: Um, So stress in the form of traumatic events, job strain, everyday stresses, and discrimination, um, this accelerates aging of the immune system, potentially increasing a person's risk of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and illness from infections, such as COVID-19. According to a study, the research um, could help explain disparities in age-related health, including the unequal toll of a, the pandemic and identify possible point of intervention.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This, this is quite an interesting topic because um, we don't tend to think about the impact of that stress. Mm. has on our body we know that it has an impact but we don't look at the holistic view and looking at it from a immune system Mm. how it affects our immune system and how that in turn will affect us in our health and how it it allows it detrimentally um, impacts our health when we can't recover from certain diseases like we've seen during COVID-19 where people were extremely stressed from job strain or other elements that we not used with lockdown um, and shortage of certain things and the stress that that caused and the impact it had on our health.
0: Mm. So, so what this implies is that if you're under stress, your your ability to recover from uh, diseases like even flu is going to be uh, is going to be adversely affected, isn't it?
1: It, it does, mm-hmm. and especially as the world's population of older adults increases, understanding the disparities in age-related health is essential. Mm. And age-related changes in the immune system plays a critical part in declining health, said the um, uh, the lead of this, this study, the author Eric uh, Klopak, mm-hmm. a postdoctoral scholar at the U- USC Leonard Davis scholar, um, School of um gerontology. Oh. This study helps to clarify the mechanism involved in in accelerated immune aging. So that link between the stress factors and aging um, our aging system oh. and immunity so that decrease in our immune system.
0: Hmm. So as people age, the immune system naturally begins a dramatic downgrade. Uh, and this is uh, a condition called immunos immunosensensensens immunosensensens Immunosensens. okay uh, with advanced age uh, a person's immune uh, profile weakens and includes too many worn out blo- white blood cells circulating and too few fresh naive uh, white blood cells ready to take on new invaders uh, immune aging is associated not only with cancer but with cardio cardiovascular disease increased risk of pneumonia reduce efficacy of vaccines and organ system ageing. So certainly um, it shows that how um, stress can uh, unfortunately uh, deliver, if that's the right word, uh, these kind of diseases because uh, your immune system is impacted uh, uh, adversely. Um,
2: So
1: what's interesting is what accounts for these drastic health differences is the same in the same adults and the usc studies researchers decided to see if they could tease out a connection between a lifetime exposure to stress a known contributor to poor poor health and the declining vigor in our immune system Mm
2: -hmm. so Mm
1: -hmm. they queried and cross-referenced enormous data sets from university of, of michigan's health and retirement study a national longitudinal study of the economic, um, health, marital, family status, public and private support system of older Americans.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And
1: to calculate the exposure to various forms of social stress, the researchers analyzed responses from a national sample of 5,744 adults over the age of 50, which they answered a questionnaire designed to assess responses Um, experiences with social stress including stressful life events, chronic stress, everyday discrimination and lifetime discrimination. Both samples from the participants were then analyzed through flow cytometry, a lab technique um, that counts and clarifies blood cells as they pass one by one in a narrow stream in front of a laser has expected people with higher stress scores had older C see- seeming immune profiles with lower percentage of fresh disease fighters and higher percentage of worn-out white blood cells the association between stressful life events and fewer ready-to-response or naive um, T cells remains strong enough um, strong even After controlling for education, smoking, drinking, BMI, and race or ethnicity, Mm -hmm. some sources of stress may be impossible. Researchers say there may be a workaround. T-cells, a critical um, component of immunity, mature in a gland called the, the thymus, which sits just in front of and above the heart, has as per people age the tissue in the thymus shrinks and is replaced by fatty tissue resulting in reduced production of immune cells past research suggests that this process is accelerated by lifestyle factors like poor diet or low exercise which are both associated with social stress and uh, and i believe well it's uh, well we have our first um, guest on the line or caller on the line
0: uh, th- yes, uh, David Smithson is with us. Uh, Dave, uh, th- thank you very much for joining us uh, on the Breakfast Show. It's
4: my pleasure. It's always uh, good to, to to be invited to speak to you.
0: Well, thank you very much. Now, I didn't mention who you are. You're the operation director of Anxiety UK, uh, and Anxiety UK offers a range of support delivered through the charity's network of over 400. Anxiety UK-approved therapist. Now, uh, anxiety is very, very relevant to what we're discussing. We're discussing stress and the importance of reducing stress. So anxiety is one of the contributors to to stress. Can you, first of all, tell us about Anxiety UK? What are its objectives? What are its aims?
5: Well, well, primarily,
4: um, we were established to promote the relief and rehabilitation of people living with um, agoraphobia and associated anxiety disorders Phobias and other conditions, in particular, um, but not exclusively, by um, raising awareness of such tomic- topics and and, and um, you know making people aware of the treatment options that are available.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, how do you go about raising awareness and achieve trying to uh, fulfil your objectives, your aims?
4: Well, we 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 do a lot of work on. Um, uh, through, through obviously through the media, through talking to programs like yourselves this morning, um, through through the printed press, through social media, um, through our membership scheme, we have our own uh, quarterly magazine. Um, uh, but we we also you know we communicate a lot through 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 the internet. Um, we have a, a lot of information on our website about the different treatments that are available, the therapy services that we provide ourselves. Um, the, and a lot of the new courses and groups that we've introduced over in the last two two years, since the pandemic, we've had to look at doing things and delivering services very differently, mm-hmm. as, as indeed most of other um, health organisations have had to do, and many other organisations in general. Um, and we now deliver a lot more services online, um, and, and obviously we, as a as a, as a society, are doing a lot more work online, you know, meeting by Zoom and Teams, etc. And we are delivering services that way nowadays. So it's um, it's been fascinating to see how we've developed that over the last couple of years, mm. and how we've been able to to reach more people and help more people as a result.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the pandemic that's it's yielded some. New ways of communicating and uh, getting jobs done, and uh, yes, so you're Absolutely. certainly utilising them. Yes, um, my colleague will also be asking a couple of questions, but before he does that, sure. I mean, can I just ask you one more? It's, I mean, what, what's the difference between um, stress, which is what we were talking about, anxiety? Are they are they linked, uh, and how are they yeah. linked?
4: Well, they're, they're linked. They are slightly different. Um, I mean, stress pressure is is, is often. Um, described as something that's external, it's something that's um, being caused, you know, by, by something external. So um, somebody at work putting extra pressure on you. Um, the health and safety executive definition is it's the, the adverse reaction, stresses the adverse reaction that we have to excessive pressures or other types of demand placed on them. Mm-hmm. So they said it's something that's placed on you. Whereas the anxiety is something that comes from internally. It's an emotion. It's a feeling that we have. But one can cause the other. Too much stress can be a cause of anxiety. Uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh.
4: And that's where and the link is between the two.
2: Right.
0: Okay. Um, yes. Very interesting. Uh, Sharif, you've got some questions for... Uh, I, I yes, do. Yeah. Um,
1: good morning and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you and welcome to the show. Um, how does anxiety affect physical health and well-being?
4: Anxiety has as a way of. Um it has three sort of distinct components in terms of symptoms you've got your physical symptoms your psychological symptoms and then your your behavioral symptoms so and the physical symptoms anxiety can quite often manifest itself in in physical symptoms that people often misunderstand and and, and, and even can be misdiagnosed as other as other conditions other than anxiety so it's it has a way although it's it's a an emotion that's inside us it can it can manifest itself in all sorts of ways so you know um uh, hyperventilation or or sweating palms or butterflies and stuff but those physical reactions those physical sensations but also it it can it can bring you down it can make you anxiety can lead to anxiety-based depression because the anxiety and depression are often comorbid as well so it can happen at the same time and then that then affects how you're looking after yourself, how you're looking after you taking care of your well-being. Are you, are, you, are you bathing and looking after yourself properly? Are you, are you eating properly? Are you getting enough sleep? And, and if you're not getting the sleep that you need, if you're not just doing the basics of, of looking after your, yourself physically well enough, then that can lead to all sorts of other physical problems and physical
1: ailments. This is really interesting. Um, In order to help us kind of help each other, Mm -hmm. how can we spot when stress and anxiety become harmful in our family, colleagues, and friends?
4: Normally when the, 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 the telling signs are when you stop functioning normally, when the level of stress or the level of anxiety is so great that you just can't do what you normally do day to day so you just can't get out of bed in the morning and go to work you can't face getting up and doing the chores around the house or uh, when it starts to interfere with your normal day-to-day functioning that's when that's the time to get help and support i mean ideally you should get you know be able to spot it and and hopefully do something to take take action sooner than that um but uh, if it's if it's got to the point and that's when you more more often notice it in a in a family member or a friend, where they're not being able to function normally day to day. Then clearly they need some help and support, and um, and they need to speak to their GP and see what, what 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 treatment support is available for them.
1: Uh, I agree, and 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 if I may, sometimes it's very hard in um Absolutely. in terms of identifying when one is going through such. Um, episodes if i if i can put it that way how is there any um triggers or any any signs to kind of keep an eye out other than for like internally when we look at ourselves how we we can realize that um okay i might be going through something now or i might be exhibiting signs or and deal with that is there any any advice or guidance there is
4: it, it, it can be difficult, as you rightly say. It can, it can. The uh, there's, I, I mentioned the, uh, the 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 health and safety um, definition about the um, reaction to pressure. I mean, that can creep up slowly. It can't. It doesn't necessarily have to happen overnight. It can, it can slowly build and slowly creep up. And all of a sudden, you've hit that tipping point to that point where you you suddenly feel that you can't cope anymore, and it's it's suddenly come out of the not out of the blue so much but it's, it's just cr- gradually crept up on you um, and, and you may not notice it at first you may not notice as those that pressure and that stress is growing and building straight away so you know, you're absolutely right in, in, in the premise of the question in that it, you know it's difficult to to sometimes know um when it when it's there and when it when that stress and that pressure has got too much because um, one of our one of our clinical advisors said only only last year pressure is good for you pressure is stimulating and it's motivating but when it exceeds your ability to cope that's when you're in the stress arena and that was a quote from professor sakari cooper who um yeah it's when do you know when it's exceeding your ability to cope it's it's very it's a very fine line so it's about if you start to feel little things like you're not sleeping well or you suddenly putting off that having breakfast and just saying, "Well, I've got to get to work because I've got so much to do this morning." Um, you need to just take a, a step back and stop and think about, "Well, hang on, why am I doing this?" If you if you're able to identify the the the, the fact that that you're starting to behave differently, yeah. so your behaviour starts to be affected as well, and and then because if you don't tackle the stress that will just grow to the point where it triggers into anxiety as well because you then start getting worried about it. You start having that whole feeling of unease or fear or worry about going to work because you know there's a pile of work there waiting for you. There's there's all that pressure there waiting for you. So it's really important as soon as you spot those triggers, as soon as you spot those signs or symptoms, to, to, to address them. So you need to then look at how do we relieve some of that pressure? What do I do to get rid of some of that pressure? Do I speak to my boss? Do I unload some of my work? Do I do I agree a new deadline for a particular piece of work, or do I ask if I could pass a piece of work onto a colleague because I can't? Whatever needs to be done, you have to find a way to relieve some of that pressure. It may not be work-related that's causing the stress. It might be it might be pressures of particularly at the moment pressures of finances. This cost of living crisis, mm. the the cost of yes. fuel prices, energy prices going up. That's going to cause a huge amount of stress for people in the coming months. So, really important to to you know, be aware of of those changing circumstances in your own body, and 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 finding ways to to tackle it. And you know, really important if your your stress is being caused by the pressure of your finances to talk to somebody sooner rather than later. Not just your your GP, but also you know whoever you can talk to, at the bank or, or any other. Um, Business that that, 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 that you've you know, got my financial pressures on that that you have those conversations sooner rather than later and 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 work out a payment plan with people and those kind of things really important. I mean there's lots of other uh, agencies and charities out there people like turn to us that can help you with that but those financial pressures and uh, that we're going to be people are going to be facing particularly as we go into the autumn are going to cause a huge huge levels of stress and worry and anxiety for people.
1: I agree. And um, thank you for your insight, um, Dave. And um, thank you for taking the time and joining us and uh, giving us the um, answering our question this morning. And have a peace and blessing be upon you and have a lovely day. Thank you. Take care. Always nice to talk to you. Take care.
0: Right, thank you. Um, so that was uh, Dave Smithson of uh, Anxiety UK. Uh, we've also got uh, Neil Shah on the line. Neil Shah is Chief De-Stressing Officer of the Stress Management Society, uh, founder of International Wellbeing Insights and a leading international expert on stress management and well-being, uh, author of, uh, of um, certain books as well, Turning Negatives into Positives and An Introduction to Neurolinguistic Programming. So that's uh, the 10-step a stress solution as well. Uh, anyway, uh, so um, a well uh, accomplished author now. Uh, thank you very much for joining us.
6: You're most welcome. It's a pleasure. Uh,
0: can you tell us about Stress Management Society? Why does it exist uh, and uh, how does it work?
6: Yeah, the Stress Management Society is about to celebrate its 20-year anniversary, so, so we've been around for, for almost two decades now and it exists to create a happier healthier more resilient world it was uh it was founded based on my own personal experience when i was in my mid-20s i had an experience which led to me having a breakdown and sadly i attempted to end my own life and found there really wasn't much out there to support people it wasn't Mm. something that was easily or comfortably discussed there wasn't really a lot of support for younger people that were going through those kind of challenges and um, it, it was it was a tough period of my life, and when I went through that, I guess I had a bit of a uh, an epiphany where I realised that yes, obviously it was a dark period of my life, but it's, it was also a gift because it gave me a purpose, and I wanted to do something to help other people that went through that kind of thing, which is why I set the organisation up as essentially as a way to provide advice, support, and guidance to individuals that are experiencing challenges with stress and mental health, and and really to empower them to give them the ability to do or act right in a way that that may elevate them out of that situation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And when you talk about stress, uh, what effect does stress have on our health and well-being in your view?
6: <laughs> I guess the, the, you know everybody has their own unique experience of stress. It could be physiological. It could be, you, you know, well, let me take a step back. Mm-hmm. You know, what is stress? I think it's probably a more relevant question. Stress is essentially the response that allowed us continue to exist as a species if it wasn't for stress we wouldn't be here having this conversation today and there'll be nobody listening because our species would have died out hundreds of thousands of years ago stress is a response that allowed early humans to survive all the threats and challenges they faced when we first surfaced on the plains of east africa 200,000 years ago and you know imagine a caveman walking through the jungle so toothed tiger jumps out in front of them it's equipping them to fight hard or run fast That's what you need to do when you're under threat. is either run away or overpower the threat. Mm. So that's what stress is. It's a response that equips us to do that to the best of our ability. So, you know, the reality is when you produce the stress hormones that trigger that physiological chain reaction, like adrenaline and cortisol, the first thing that will happen is your heart starts pounding faster. Your breathing becomes shallow and fast. Your muscles tense up. Blood sugar rises. Blood pressure rises. And all of these changes essentially serve to allow you to navigate that situation to the best of your ability. The challenge isn't that we get stressed, the challenge is that most of us are getting stressed in situations where there's no physical response required, there's nothing to fight, nothing to run away from. You might be at your work and want to smash the computer to bits and run out of the office, but that may not be the most appropriate response. So if there is no outlet for stress because you aren't fighting or running away, then you get stuck in that state and that's where it can have a really negative effect on our mental and emotional well-being. We start to think quite negatively, more likely to argue and have conflicts and disputes. Um, we're more likely to get ill because our immune system is suppressed, digestion is suppressed, and we can have digestive problems. It's really hard to think clearly because blood is quite literally being drained from the brain and sent to the muscles like your arms and legs to help you to f- navigate that situation. So it's really hard to problem solve, think laterally, think creatively creatively. Um, you're not going to sleep well at night, so your energy levels will drop. It's really hard to be present and mindful. So, you know, many, many different things that mm. are likely to happen. But the, the key thing is, what is what is similar for all of us is, is there's that initial physiological reaction. And then, you know, the symptoms, the side effects might be different for some of us based on our experience and, and the way we're navigating it. But if we go back to the, the root cause, that if you are stressed, your body's expecting something to happen, like some kind of physical activity. Now, firstly, is there something to fight and run away from? And if so, what action can you take at that moment to do something about it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, very interesting. Um, my colleague's with me, Um, um well, uh, on the line. Uh, he'd be asking you a few questions. Is that okay?
1: Sure. Yeah, sure. So what can be... Done by employees in these difficult times to reduce workplace stress, and is this being done
6: by employees or employers? Sorry, I didn't catch you. Employers, sorry. Well, the first thing is we live in a very strange time. Um, You know, it very much feels like we're living in an episode of Black Mirror. Um, (laughs) You you couldn't make this story up. Who knows what's going to happen next? You you know, we, we had COVID and then. Looks like World War Three started. Now we've got a cost of living crisis. You know, now we're we're facing temperatures in the UK that are going to be hotter than we've ever experienced before. There's inflation. We haven't got a prime minister. This is like you, the list goes on. This is a very crazy time. Mm-hmm. And- you know, whoever's writing this script, um, they might need to take a little bit of a break because this is just getting, you know, a bit unmanageable now. Based on the current trajectory, my belief is the next thing that will happen is the vaccine will turn people into zombies. That's I Am Legend with Will Smith. And then aliens will attack Independence Day. And then on top of that, like, you know, we talk about Will Smith films. Will Smith himself has lost the plot. So this, this is a very strange and crazy time. As an employer, you have a moral and legal duty of care responsibility to your people. I think we've all come to the realization we cannot wait for government and political authorities to fix the problems we're facing in our society. Um, they can't fix their own problems, which is why we have mm. the political mess that we have. So, you, you know, who, who's taking responsibility for this? Well, you know, if you are an organization that, let's say, I don't know, makes computers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's say you're Apple, You know, if you ask someone that works for Apple, what does Apple do? And we make technology that, you know, makes people's lives easier, et cetera, or we make computers, we make, you know, mobile phones or whatever. Apple don't do that. Apple don't do anything. Why? Because Apple doesn't exist. Who does those things? The people that work at the company, right? Unless you're a completely AI-driven company, which nobody is yet, you need the people to be able to deliver those services. Now, it seems like many employers view that as a bit of an afterthought. If you have, like, technology, for example, you'd have a service plan with the company that provides your technology. If you've got a fleet of cars, you have, like, a fleet management plan. Yet, even though people will have kind of tick box resources for their people, we don't look after our people in the same way we look after our technology, our facilities, or our fleet, which for me is very interesting because you can't do anything without your people. So why are they not front and center of your proposition? Why is your people, culture, and well-being strategy not aligned to your business plan? sales and marketing facilities, etc., are always tied to the business plan. Why is not people culture and well being tied to the business plan? Because it's not seen as a strategic proposition. Often they are tick box exercises. Oh let's do some yoga, we'll have some meditation classes, mm. we'll have some fruit boxes, we'll have an EAP, we'll have a few policies, but actually not looking at how is this structurally and strategically aligning with kind of the the the, 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 the future of the business. So Here's the difference. Initiatives are the kind of things that we've just talked about, the you know the Employee Assistance Program, Staff Counseling, etc.
1: They are pieces
6: of the jigsaw. What I am saying to every employer that's listening today is what's the picture on the front of the jigsaw box? That's the strategy. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. how do you know you have the right piece and your assembly the pieces in the right way? Correct. There's a Harvard yeah. Business Review uh, report that was published a couple of months ago, and it says we are beyond self-care. Because what we tend to do when it comes to sort of mental health uh, uh, and well-being, we put the, the, the onus back on the individual. It's like, oh, we've got these things. You need to go to the workshop. You need to do this. You need to do that. Without actually understanding that it's not an individual issue. It's not the individual that's broken. Mahatma Gandhi said that you judge a society by how it treats its most vulnerable members.
2: Oh, sorry. Oh, yes.
6: Yeah. I was saying, Maham Gandhi said that you, treat, you judge society by how it treats its most vulnerable members. We are failing the most vulnerable members of our society because, you know, one in four people are experiencing mental health issues. The main cause of death for a man under the age of 45 in Britain is suicide. And you know, how have we allowed it to get to this point? So what I'm saying here is if we catch it early enough, and rather than looking at it as an individual issue, we look at it as a societal and a community issue, this is how we can start getting better at addressing these issues. Now, we know this is true because there's a direct correlation between the degradation of community over the last 60 or 70 years and the increase in mm-hmm. mental health issues and suicidality. They're, they're, this is unique to Western cultures. If you go to, I think, in, in, in the Himalayas, um, Papua New Guinea, northern Japan, uh, shamanic cultures in South America, they have low to no instance of mental health issues. They're known as the blue zones where people typically live to you know up to 100 years of age and have a better quality of life. Why? There's something we don't, community, they rely on each other, they look after each other. Mm. What I'm saying to employers, you operate a community and get get it to the point where people are looking out for each other, that you rely on each other, and you're looking at the community as a whole rather than individuals and blaming individuals for being broken when they're compromised.
1: I agree, and this is something that fascinates me in terms of um, how employers and how individuals kind of takes those those actions but one thing that i wanted to touch on um and maybe you can enlighten us with your expertise on it is turning those negatives into positives and using neuro-linguistic programming nlp in terms of kind of changing our behaviors but how can our listeners kind of spot harmful stress levels in themselves and others around them and use those techniques and those um um identity um those identification techniques to kind of change our behaviors and so that we can improve how we deal with them well exactly
6: as you said the first step must be recognition we need to be able to recognize we're in a state that's not serving us and most people don't because we're living in a state that is not serving us that we've become become accustomed to It's, it's known as the boiling frog syndrome uh, and, and this is just an analogy, no animals were harmed in this, in this story, and I'm an animal lover myself, So, uh, but it's just a story for the sake of a story. If you have a pan of boiling water and you put a frog into it, it's going to jump straight out because it'll be burning. But if you put a frog in a pan of cold water and very slowly raise it to boiling temperature, the frog will boil to death. Why? Because why won't know he's been boiled to death. This is basically the human species at the moment we are being boiled to death but the temperature has been raised slowly over the last 50 or 60 years to the point where what we're experiencing right now is unsustainable let me give you an example of how bad it's got in october 2020 in the month of october 2020 more people took their own life in japan that died from covid the whole of the year of 2020 yet new stories felt the whole of twenty twenty were dominated by COVID. Right? We mm-hmm. don't even talk about issues around stress and mental health, let alone take action about it. We don't have round the clock counts of mental health cases or deaths as a result of it. We do for other issues. So here's mm-hmm. the thing: they, you know, mental health lives don't have political leverage. Uh, they, these are they're largely ignored, even though you know, when you talk about sort of figures on the planet. On average, in a given year, you have about 50,000, 60,000 people that die of all the wars on the planet put together. You turn on the news, there's lots of stories about wars happening in the world, particularly in Ukraine at the moment. I am, you know, hugely devastated by what's happening over there. But I'm just giving context here. If you add all human violence put together, murder, etc., it goes up to 400,000 people. figures on uh, suicide are 1.2 million people. That's just to give context. So, firstly, we do need to recognize we're compromised. Those figures show how bad the problem is. Now, that's when it's already too late. How do we recognize it early enough so we can take action to prevent ourselves from getting to those kind of points? Well, here's the thing. We don't even talk about it, firstly. It's it's a subject that has guilt, shame, and stigma attached to it. So we need to get better at just being more vulnerable and being more authentic and really being able to open up about how we're doing. But also, from a personal level, we need to be able to recognize what our normal operating baseline behaviors are. And when we're outsourced, there will be changes to your behavior. You might start caring less about how you uh, uh, present yourself. You might not bother to shave or shower or put on a clean dress or, or, or whatever. We might not sleep well. We might be eating more to regain we weight. We might be eating less. We might turn to substances like uh, caffeine, alcohol, sugar, nicotine, Um You might stop socializing and doing the things that you enjoy. You might stop exercising. You might find that you're working longer hours and actually getting less done. You might find the quality of your interactions and communication will diminish. Uh, you, You might find that you're more likely to get ill. And here's another real sort of quandary for me. We had two years where we were basically put into a state of fear by everything that was going on, told to stay at home, etc. I'm not saying it was wrong or right, but everybody knows that when you are stressed, you are more susceptible to illness, right? That's a biological factory. Yes. But, you, you know, your, your immune system suppressed. You're more likely to get ill. We had two of the most stressful years in living memory, at a time when there's a pandemic, it's quite literally the worst state to be in because you are much more likely to get ill. In fact, in those situations, we'd we'll be looking at how do we empower, encourage, and inspire people to be healthy because we know when they're scared, they're gonna get sick. And that's exactly what happened, right? So part of this is recognizing your immune system is gonna be suppressed. You are more likely to catch a cold or flu, get a digestive mm-hmm. issue, have you um, you know, you know, some kind of illness, bacterial, viral condition this is another kind of thing that get better at recognizing early enough be able Mm -hmm. to check in with yourself on a regular basis and when you're finding that your 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 proverbial bridge like if if we imagine ourselves like a a bridge if you put too much weight too much load too much demand on a bridge the bridge will eventually collapse Collapse. but before the bridge collapses we will know it's not coping particularly well because it'll be bowing groaning buckling and creaking now we are the same if i put too much pressure too much demand too much load on any individual they too will collapse And that collapse could be serious. It could lead to loss of life. It could lead to having a breakdown. It could lead to serious health issues like heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, stroke. And these have all been connected to stress both directly and indirectly. That's when the bridge collapses. But when the bridge is buying and buckling, some of the things that we were talking about earlier, if we catch it when the bridge is buying and buckling, you can then either consider what can what can I take off the bridge? What load of demand can I take off the bridge? Is it that I need to take some time off work? Is it that I need to ask the grandparents mm-hmm. to look after the kids? Is it that, that you, you know I need to delegate some of this responsibility? Is it that I need to deprioritize some of these things? Or what support do I need to get? Do I need to get professional help? Do I need to mm-hmm. uh, you, you know look at kind of my lifestyle habits and behaviors? Is it that I need to take more time meditating or praying or, 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 or getting regular walks in or, or whatever? But the point is, everyone should be checking in with their bridge every single day. And if your bridge is strong, great. What am I going to do to maintain it? If my bridge is buying and buckling, what action do I need to take to alleviate the load or to better reinforce it? If your bridge is in danger of collapsing, then that's the point you need to take immediate action before you get to the point where something more serious is
1: likely to happen. Neil, this has been... Um, um, really fascinating, and I wish we had another couple of hours to go into all of um, all of these areas because I, I truly find this fascinating, and uh, I I look at how we can change. We did we actually did a whole show a few months ago around turning negative thoughts into positive thoughts, and I find it quite fascinating in terms of how the brain works and how we can assess and review all of this. I would like to thank you for um, for your time this morning. And wish you all the best and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Um, have a great day. Fantastic. And if people want more information, they can check it out at
6: www.stress.org.uk. There's lots of free resources there for everyone to use. Thank you. No worries. Have well, a good day. Bye bye.
0: Thank you very much, Chuck. That was uh, Neil Shah. We've also got um, <laughs> Alison Pay, I understand, that uh, we're going to be speaking to. Uh, we're still trying to get. Uh, and that connection through Alison is the managing director of mental health at work, and uh, so sure she'd be joining us, and we will be quizzing her on this. As far as um, the um, Islamic teachings on this is concerned, um, we can briefly go through them because uh, uh, while we're waiting for Alison, then uh, we can cover certain aspects of. Uh, um, Islamic teachings that are relevant. Um, the attainment, uh, according to uh, what we uh, believe, the attainment of worldly aspirations leads to material prosperity and a measure of happiness, um, a, a measure of happiness uh, which should be uh, properly appreciated. Uh, they are indeed blessings for which one should uh, be ever grateful to. Um, God uh, has uh, said uh, in the Holy Quran, Be grateful to Allah for whoso is grateful. Uh, and then uh, um, indeed, um, whoso is grateful for the good of, uh, is grateful. I'll, I'll give that quote again, it's uh, from chapter 31 verse 3. Be grateful for, to Allah for whoso is grateful, is grateful for the good of his own soul. Um, there is however the experience of spiritual happiness and prosperity which excels that of worldly satisfaction and it is this kind of happy prosperity which one should seek to attain. While it comes only through the grace of God, He has provided ways and means by which one may receive this gift from Him. It is the way of God that He helps those who have themselves and the Holy Quran is full of instructions for the guidance of spiritual wayfarer which includes the following points that should be given practical attention. Uh, It is they who follow guidance from the Lord and it is they who shall prosper. Um, Now we will continue more uh, with this uh, after this short break. We need a short break and uh, we will also be talking afterwards to Mr. uh, to Alison Pay on this on this particular subject. So don't go away. Uh, We'll be back in a minute.
3: Writings of the Promised Messiah The real purpose of all the external and internal limbs and faculties that have been bestowed on man is understanding and worship and love of God. That is why, despite a thousand occupations, man does not find his true well-being except in God Almighty. Having acquired great wealth or achieved high office, Or having become a great merchant, or having acquired governing authority, or become a great philosopher, he departs in the end from these worldly involvements with a sense of frustration. His heart rebukes him all the time about his deep concern with the world, and his conscience never approves his wiles and deceits and wrongful actions. When he takes stock of man's faculties and powers to discover his highest capacity, we find that he is invested with the faculty of seeking after God so much that he desires that he should become so devoted to God's love that he should have nothing of his own and that everything should become God's. He shares his natural needs like food and drink and rest. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day.
0: Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the uh, Breakfast Show at the Voice of Islam with uh, Mr. Sharif Banu and myself. And them at the time, it's 30 minutes past eight. It's uh, Friday, the uh, 15th of July, 2022. As promised before the break, uh, we are going to be speaking to another expert. Uh, after that, we'll be covering the uh, Islamic view, which we started uh, before the break. We'll be uh, continuing with that. But let's talk to Alison uh, Pay before that. Um, Alison uh, is uh, managing director of Mental Health at Work. Thank you very much for joining us on the breakfast show, Alison.
7: Uh, you're welcome, and um, delighted to be with you this morning.
0: Good. Uh, we're discussing stress uh, and uh, I, what flows from stress. Uh, tell us, first of all, about your mental health at work. I mean, this is the organization you're the managing director of. How long have you been working at improving mental health? Is uh, it of, uh, of the public?
7: Um, we've been around for some time, actually. So, started back in 2015 when um, the Um, Maudsley in South London, NHS Trust, actually, the charity that's associated with that, noticed that um, there there was a real demand, growing demand in the workplace to understand a little bit more about mental health and how to manage it. And uh, um, the not-for-profit community interest company that we are today was set up at that stage Mm. uh, to to work with organisations of all sizes, to try and support them to, to build their capability around all aspects of the mental health agenda. So we, we position ourselves as um, experts in workplace mental health rather than experts in mental health. And that's kind of the, you know, the messaging that we are trying to get across to organisations. Ultimately, um, we'd like every organisation to, to be able to have very natural and open conversations about mental health.
0: Mm. As uh, your work increased, and uh, as people, more people are finding this as an important condition to address.
7: Oh, absolutely! Um, back in two thousand and fifteen and two thousand and sixteen, there was still a lot of nervousness around the topic, and workplaces would, would often say, "That's all really interesting, but you know, we do, we don't have that here." And I think the, the activity that's taken place across broader society, led by you know a, a whole host of um, uh, celebrities, uh, the royal family, I think has really raised that profile and that openness and the acceptance that we do all have mental health. Uh, sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's, it, it, it may be not so good. Sometimes we might have an illness. But it moves over time, and the mental health, you know, doesn't de- define us as we are, and um, you know, isn't fixed in time, and is part of what we bring to work. Mm.
0: Um, I have a colleague who'll be asking a few questions before he does that. Um, uh, just tell me, is it the responsibility of employers? Is it the legal responsibility of employers to, to cater for the welfare, the mental welfare of their staff?
7: um so firstly i would say it's a human responsibility mm. um you know we we've got a, a responsibility to protect the people um that that work with us and for us and um you know the, I, I think that is the starting point there is also some legal a legal framework around this um under the health and safety at work act uh employers have got a responsibility to do no harm so we're more familiar with that in a physical setting you know we need safe places to work we need safe procedures but it's also important from a from a psychological health and safety perspective so you know that includes mental health and and that can include everything from uh, supporting me if i have got a mental health issue or a diagnosis but right back to kind of supporting me to stay well so um you know spotting and acting on bullying um uh You know, uh, uh, poor management, other things that might, help, you know, affect our well-being at work. And on top of that, there is we, all of us at work have got a duty of care under the Equality Act
2: 2010.
7: Mm. So that means we've got a duty of care to notice and to act. So that can can sound a little bit overwhelming. Um, but what, what the act doesn't require is that we're all clinicians and that we can spot signs of mental illness. But all, all it's asking us to do is notice when something might not be quite natural for a person or normal for that individual and act on it and act in proportion to it. So, you know, if we if we see a colleague consistently coming into work um, and being very withdrawn, when usually... They are, you know, the life and soul of of the workplace. Maybe that's an opportunity just to ask a question. Mm. How are you today? I've noticed something. And then know, not be be afraid about what they might say in response to that. So know that there are, it's not your responsibility to fix, Mm. but there are lots of organisations maybe within your own maybe signposting and support within your own organization but external to it that 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 can support so uh, you know the 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 law does protect us at work around this but um our advice is always be be aware of the law but act act as a as a fellow human being giving the time to somebody to ask them a question and you know inform yourself just that little bit mm. about where people mm. might go for, for support.
0: Okay um, 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 my colleague's name is Sharif he's going to be asking you some questions. Go, on, okay. go ahead, Good, Sharif. Morning. Mm.
1: Good morning Alison and welcome to the Thank show. You. Um, Thank you. COVID-19 has changed the whole way we work and the whole aspect in terms of we had this element of working from home and then working now we're going back into the office for the last few months. And it has created much more stress generally and instability at work. How has that impacted the workplace and mental health of employees?
7: Gosh, yes, it has been a roller coaster, hasn't it? And um, you know, sometimes we we I, th- I think we forget that and that we've got quite short memories about the mm. things that we have been through in the last two and a half years. And and and, and possibly are still going through um so i think it's had a huge impact on on the workplace and and the re, you know the responsible workplace the responsible employer i think is one that recognises that and you know still gives people the time to 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 talk about it working from home for those of us that that moved to that model was a huge adjustment um you know, some people have loved it and have extolled the virtues of it. For lots of people, for many different reasons, that is very hard. And that does have an impact on our mental health. Returning to the office um, and particularly the uncertainty about what that means, whether that's um, because we're still concerned about COVID or whether it's that's, that's um, about, you know, how our life is set up, again, is a, you know, it, can be, can be a source of concern for us. Uh, in our work with organisations, we talk about understanding situational anxiety. So about really recognising that, that because our mental health is on a continuum, all these things impact us to a greater or lesser extent. So situational anxiety is not a mental health issue, but it can be uh, a pre uh, a precursor to a mental health issue. So, if we can be open and we can talk about these things with our, uh, ideally with our manager, but if not, maybe with a, a trusted colleague at work. Uh, sometimes that conversation alone can be enough to help alleviate some of some of that um, uh, some of that concern. But sometimes we might need other support. So, I think it's a. It's a real recognition about that. I think um, you know building building relationships at work takes time. and um, I, you know I think sometimes we we forget that during periods of of um, when we worked from home, those relationships would start to change. Mm. You know we need to think about how we rebuild them, both in the uh, physical um or or in real life environment as we now like to call it versus the the virtual of the, the hybrid environment
1: I, I agree and it's it's quite it's quite difficult to kind of assess and especially when those factors tend to be hidden and um, kind of internal and kind of identifying those are key and like our previous caller has um our previous guest has mentioned is identification of when those stresses start to affect us is key yeah.
2: so yeah
1: in terms of when we do and um when once we've recognized that there are stress and it's becoming yeah. harmful to us what can we do when we when that's happened
7: um so so i think it's it's uh being aware of our of ourselves and about what is normal and natural to us because you know for most of us, some level of stress is quite good. You know, it it mm-hmm. gets us up in the morning, it gets us motivated about work. but you know p- p- you know p- prolonged stress is uh, you know can be harmful um, and can be difficult. So it's a it's a being honest and recognizing and noticing um, being able to talk about it is really helpful. and if you can talk about it at work, That's super helpful. Um, As I mentioned earlier, sometimes just telling people is enough. Um, It it may be something that someone can help you to to support you to fix, but it might be that it isn't. And I would also say there's not just one thing. We're all very individual. So the, the, the solution often comes from the individual who's feeling the stress. So if you can yes. create an environment where someone feels they can be open about that, you usually have the answer. Because what's mm. right for me when I'm feeling feeling stressed will not be right for the next person. Um, so it's been really um, considerate about that. A reduction in, in workload might be an answer, but 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 it also may me make me feel even more stressed because I mm. might start being concerned then about uh, my my career progression, my interest—you know—the the, the degree of interest in my work. I, you know, I can't emphasize enough; it isn't one size fits all. I
1: I agree, and um, Alison, this has been um, very interesting and lovely speaking with you. So, thank you for your time, and I wish you all the best and peace and blessing of Allah be be with you.
7: Lovely. Well, thank you, and um, thanks thanks for raising this important topic. Um, On a sunny
0: Friday morning. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Right, that was Alison Pei and she's the Managing Director of Mental Health at Work. Uh, And just to close this, uh, the Holy Quran, there's a verse of the Holy Quran, part of which is inscribed, in fact, on the dome of uh, our mosques, Uh, many of our mosques, including. Uh, this mosque uh, from where we are broadcasting from the of Su Mosque. Um, the verse reads, Those who believe, the entire verse um, reads, Those who believe and whose hearts find comfort in the remembrance of Allah. It is in the remembrance of Allah that the hearts uh, can find comfort. This is from uh, chapter 13, verse 29. Hearts find comfort in remembrance of God. Why? Because anxiety is caused by fear of an impending calamity. If an individual believes that there is a remedy for every ailment, uh, we will not be over uh, vexed, over worried. When somebody remembers uh, Allah and realizes that with His unlimited powers we can, He can remove all types of difficulties, His heart uh, comforts him uh, by saying, "Why do I need to be concerned? I have an all-powerful God. He will surely remove my troubles." Such thoughts provide peace of mind. Allah befriends him who spends his time in his remembrance, he provides him a place of audience, and even when he is uh, he is still in this world. Um, so this is uh, a lesson, I suppose, that uh, is very relevant to what we're discussing. We have to, to move on. We've already spent uh, more than the allotted time on that first part of the program, and we have to move on, unfortunately. We could have spent a lot more, uh, and uh, perhaps... Uh, Like uh, Brother Sharif was saying that uh, we should perhaps devote a whole program to this, like he's done, uh, like he has been involved in uh, before. Uh, So that's perhaps something that we should consider for another day. In the meantime, uh, we need to uh, press on, and this is the uh, concerning the second part of the program and the second topic that we have, and it is about um, archaeological discovery, which says that Jesus uh, was crucified. So the question arises, was Jesus crucified? Um, we will shortly um joined by Edward David um, who is a research fellow at the um, Faculty of Theology and uh, Religion at the University of Oxford. So I think uh, our engineers are trying to put him through at the moment. But uh, while that is being done, let me just mention what the gist of the story is. It's something that we picked up from uh, one of the websites, express.co.uk. Uh, um, and essentially, it there is evidence uh, for Jesus Christ's crucifixion story uh, was uh, provide, has been provided by a stunning archaeological discovery of a Jewish tomb uh, from the biblical era. And uh, as you know, Easter, and this is relevant to Easter, is at the heart of the Christian religion. I know we're not in the season of Easter, but still. uh, On Good Friday, Jesus uh, was uh, uh, supposed to be executed, and crucifixion... Uh, by crucifixion for treason after claiming he was king of the Jews, and his body was subsequently taken down uh, from the cross and uh, and buried in a cave. The entrance to the guarded tomb was sealed off by an enormous stone so that no one could uh, steal uh, the body of Jesus. So uh, the story, as you know, moves on, but I have to to stop it there because I know that uh, Mr... Uh, professor, should I say, Professor Edward uh, David is on the line, and uh, we I need to talk to him and get uh, greater insight into this particular uh, uh, story. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, am I right in addressing you as uh, Professor, uh, as Professor Edward, uh, um, sir?
8: Well, you, you've given me a promotion, so I'm oh, very uh, flattered, but you can, uh, <laughs> Dr, Dr. David is fine.
0: Dr. David, okay. My, my apologies, but I'm sure yeah, yeah. you'll uh, you rise up to that very, very soon. <laughs> um, tell me, um, uh, what is the archaeological evidence uh, relating to the crucifixion of Jesus?
8: Yeah, so we can begin with um, the practice of crucifixion in general, uh, for which there there is. Uh, archaeological evidence um, so a little bit of background um, crucifixion uh, as a practice you know this nailing or uh, pinning someone on onto a cross and then uh, uh, letting them die that way it was a practice that probably began in persia um, between 300 and 400 bce now when the roman empire um, sort of engaged with persia they took on this practice and the romans uh, used crucifixion as a means to execute some of the most um, hated people of the time. And it was a particularly shameful sort of execution. You can think of being exposed for everyone to see. Hmm. Now, People who were crucified were enslaved people, um, Christians uh, when they were becoming more uh, politically relevant, certain foreigners, and just political activists um, in general that threatened the empire. So, as a practice, uh, crucifixion was fairly common. And okay. in terms of archaeological evidence here in the UK uh, or globally, there there are actually three other uh, physical sort of physical evidence of crucifixion.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: One being in Italy, the other in Egypt, and significantly, so closer to Jesus,
2: mm-hmm.
8: uh, there's evidence in North Jerusalem. Uh, that was discovered in 1968. And so what does this evidence look like? Well, it's it basically uh, a, a bone with the actual nail in it. Right? Right. And that's, that's also something that was found more recently, in 2017, actually, in Cambridgeshire, oh. uh, here in the UK. So they found evidence of uh, crucifixion, even up here in sort of Northern Europe, an, a heel bone with a nail through it. So, evidence of the practice of crucifixion, uh, we, we now have at least four physical uh, pieces of evidence.
0: But come, now, com, come to the specific yeah. uh, uh, suggestion that Jesus was crucified. So, what's yeah, the archaeological yeah. evidence there? So, we know that um, the evidence of crucifixion exists. What about evidence of Jesus being crucified?
8: Yeah, so when we get down to Jesus himself, we have to consider at least, well, multiple things to consider. One, the fact that there's only four physical pieces of evidence of crucifixion in general speaks to the fact that the evidence deteriorates pretty quickly. Um, So you have these people who weren't really properly buried, and therefore we don't really have uh, access the bones with the nails uh, uh, readily available, right? So when we look at Jesus, we can consider uh, a few things. One, there's early Christian tradition uh, around the crucifixion of Jesus and having physical uh, uh, pieces that speak to it. So one is the Shroud of Turin. So the Shroud of Turin is a burial cloth that is currently being held in Turin in Italy. And it contains, um, its basically contains an imprint of Christ's blood. And there's been tons of carbon dating of this document. There's been um, examination of the seeds uh, that are sort of lodged, embedded into the cloth itself. And the dating and the seeds all point to the time when Christ would have been crucified. So there's this tradition that this cloth indeed is a burial cloth. Um, of Jesus. There's also some other physical pieces that are associated with uh, Christ from this Christian tradition and his crucifixion. So relics of the true cross, so little shards of the wood. So these different relics scattered all throughout the world have been collected by uh, Christians over the centuries. And they say that the wood is the exact same piece of wood, carbon dated, um, same from the same uh, tree, so to mm-hmm. speak. And also uh, the title board. So, as you may know, um, there was this board that said King of the Jews that was put on top of the cross uh, on which Christ was crucified. And uh, there's this tradition that part of that title board still exists. Mm. Now, real quick, just to wrap up on this point, you know, Christian tradition with these physical relics, so to speak, um, speaks to the crucifixion. But I think we should also not forget that uh, historical evidence of a different sort may be more significant, and that's historical evidence of Scripture itself, right? So the fact that the Bible, the Old and New Testament, are uh, books of faith, uh, so to speak, doesn't discredit that they they also have a historical uh, truth to them. So we have these accounts of a crucifixion across four Gospels in uh, Christian scripture. And also we have the living tradition coming from the time, even before those, those stories were written down, right? This oral tradition, then we get scripture written and that tradition living on afterwards. And that tradition speaks to resurrected experiences. Um, so or the crucifixion and then the resurrected experiences moving forward. So consider together, that's, that's what we have to work off of. Not convincing for everyone, Mm-hmm. But uh, in the eyes of faith, uh, that's that's what we um, we work with.
0: Mm-hmm. Are, are there any differences about uh, Jesus' uh, crucifixion between the New Testament and the Old Testament? Um, who was Pontius Pilate, for example? What role did he play?
8: Yeah, um, well, let's let's address the, the Old Testament, New Testament question quickly first. So, when we look at Old Testament and New Testament with regard to the crucifixion, what we're really asking is about, are there prophecies, are there foretellings of the crucifixion in the Old Testament? And so from a Christian theological viewpoint, absolutely, there's, there's plenty. So I can just highlight maybe two passages. Um, in Psalm 22, there's a passage that reads, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, all my bones are on display. Now, that sort of passage, you know, we, we go, oh, this, is, this sounds like it's speaking to the fiction, right? And but we have to remember that Psalm 22 was composed by King David, or at least it's attributed to King David, who lived a thousand years before
2: mm.
8: Christ. And King David never experienced anything of, of this sort, where dogs surround me, pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and feet, these things specifically. My bones are on display. They don't apply to David. So, in, in the eyes of faith, we say, well, David was inspired. He was inspired by God, prophesying about uh, the crucifixion, what may uh, come. Oh, another uh, passage, maybe Isaiah. 52 And Isaiah is a sort of piece that I think a lot of people, even non-Christians, are familiar with because uh, um, there's lots of musical uh, pieces. Handel um, wrote a a beautiful uh, piece that uses words from Isaiah that's uh, performed often around Christmas time. So anyway, but uh, Isaiah has uh, verses that speak of someone taking up our pain, bearing our suffering, being punished by God. And so these are these are mm-hmm. um, hints at a suffering servant that we associate uh, in the Christian tradition with Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, now Pontius Pilate, real quick, um, what was his role in all of this? Well, he was the adjudicator of problems uh, in the empire uh, in Judea at the time. And one of the problems he had to deal with was religious ferments, right? Uh, if there were things happening that uh, could possibly threaten the empire and even threaten his own position as a governor in the empire. So he was basically the legal or authoritative head over the proceedings that condemned Jesus uh, on the cross. Now, the Gospels give uh, fairly detailed accounts, Luke, Gospels of Luke and the Gospel of John, uh, have some really uh, fascinating details, and uh, I won't I won't walk you through them now. But um, basically, what we can see is we can see uh, Pilate in two lights. We can look at his character in two lights. One, we can see him as being cold-hearted and calculating. So perhaps Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, that that Jesus wouldn't. Uh, Bring about the fall of the empire. Uh, but maybe Pilate, Pilate said to himself, Well, I need to think about my own position. I need to make sure I'm not recalled from my governorship, which he had for 10 years, which was uh, unprecedented. Normally, people only had it for two years. So maybe Pilate in his mind was being calculating and saying, Okay, let's, let's give in to these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish uh, chief priest. And have Christ crucified because I just want to save my back. Or we can look at Pilate maybe in a more sympathetic, uh, even a Christian light, and we can say, well, maybe he was courageous. He asked a lot of questions. He did um, do his process of examination very thoroughly. He asked for evidence. Uh, he wasn't convinced, um, as we read in scripture, but he felt that his hands were tied and he gave in. Uh, to the religious authorities, and maybe there's even a tradition that uh, Pilate may have become Christian himself uh, later down uh, or a, a believer himself uh, down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an even stronger tradition that his wife became a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, so his wife makes a uh, an, an appearance in the Gospel of John or, or Luke uh, as well
2: mm-hmm. so
8: that 's his role. Um, Adjudicator, and then we can also learn from him. We can learn how do we respond in the face of truth or divinity.
0: Yes. Uh, I, 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 we've got very little time. Are you still yeah. there? Uh, yes, okay. I yes. thought we cut off there. I um, just want to ask you this. Um, crucifixion is one thing, successful crucifixion is quite another. Um, I, men- I say this because uh, you mentioned the shroud earlier. All evidence seems to indicate that the person who was wrapped in the shroud, assumed to be Jesus, was alive. So, uh, would you deduce from that that the crucifixion was not successful?
8: Ooh, it, well, okay. So, from a, a theological standpoint,
0: um, no. From, an, from a from a from sci- a archaeological scientific standpoint
8: yeah yeah so yeah, in a certain sense we could say the crucifixion was successful that uh that it it did kill christ then we can also think that well if if archaeological evidence um speaks to the shroud containing someone that was alive um then it throws a wrench into that that uh assessment there that the crucifixion was successful as we would expect it to be in terms of mm. killing someone. Because mm. if someone came alive, well, or was alive, um, then we have potentially scientific evidence that speaks both ways, right? Speaks to, okay, well, maybe the crucifixion didn't quite kill Christ, or maybe we have some evidence that's cast out even on that position that says, well, maybe that person came back to life. Mm. So in Christian tradition, right, Christ was buried, was dead, but then thank came you. back.
0: Right. Okay. But uh, yes. Okay. No, that's that's quite interesting. Now, thanks. Thanks very much. I mean, uh, as as always, we would have loved to uh, uh, speak to you for longer, but we've just run out of time. So, thanks no, very course. much. Thanks thank very you. much. And I hope that when we next speak to you, you'll be a professor. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So that was Dr. Have a good morning. A- thank you, Will Drew. Thank you, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Edward David. Um, he's an archaeological um, expert, and uh, we are going to be speaking to uh, Professor David Thomas uh, later on, and um, Mr. Sherif Burnu will be conducting that interview in its entirety. I'm sorry, uh, Sharif, I didn't let you in there. Uh, I just no, no, it's to... okay. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, what I was going to say, um, we have to move on. Uh, we are waiting for uh, Doctor uh, Professor David Thomas. Um, and while we're doing that, I mean, as far as the, um, um, the Muslim uh, standpoint is that uh, it is uh, something we claim that uh, Jesus was taken down, was put on the cross, but was taken down alive. The whole uh, story and uh, the anxiety that was expressed by Pilate and the wife uh, of, of Pilate uh, resulted in delay. Did- did- of for him being put put on the cross in the first place uh, such that he remained on the cross for between three and six hours only, not sufficient, uh, for to engender death uh, of somebody who was healthy uh, from all accounts, um, 30 or 35 years of age uh, and um, and the fact that his bones were not broken like those of his, uh, like the, the other two uh, uh, people that were uh, uh, crucified with him uh, also indicates that uh, there was no attempt to accelerate his death and that in all probability he was taken down um, in order to be saved and uh, the cloth that he was wrapped in, if it is that of Jesus substantiates the fact that uh, the person in it was alive. If it was Jesus, then he was alive. So he went onto the cross alive and came down from the cross alive. Um, so whether that's supported by archeological evidence is uh, is another question. We think it is, if the shroud is a true relic of that particular event. Uh, but then uh, these discussions can uh, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll unfold later on. As far as uh, this program is concerned, we now have the um, honour of uh, speaking to Professor David Thomas. Uh, thank you for coming on to the breakfast show, Doctor uh, Professor Thomas. Good morning. Good morning. Right, so I'm going to hand this interview entirely to my colleague. His name is uh, Mr. Sharif Banu. Uh, over to you, sir.
1: Good morning, Professor Dave, um, Thomas. Thank you Hello. for taking the time and joining us on The Breakfast Show. Peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Um, Professor Thomas has been a specialist in Islam and Christian-Muslim relations for many years. After an undergraduate work at Oxford, he worked in the northern Sudan where he where his interest in Islam was kindle, kindled. He took he uh, this further in theological studies at Cambridge and a PhD research at Lancaster. So... Um my first question for you, Professor Thomas, is you've conducted research on the relations between Christians and Muslims. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us about the difference in opinion between the two when it comes to the crucifixion story?
5: Well, as you might expect, uh, the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is probably the most contentious point of difference between Christians and Muslims. Um, The the Christian tradition has very elaborate um, understandings of the death of Christ, but at the center of it all is the um, uh, insistence that the death of Christ on the cross was a historical event. The Quran uh, makes it very clear that Christ was not killed on the cross. In chapter 4 and verse 157, um, it is stated explicitly that they, presumably the Jews, uh, did not kill him and did not crucify him. So the event of the crucifixion in Islam um, is something that did not take place. Uh, so there is a direct disagreement between the two faiths about the event of the crucifixion. Um, in Islam, uh, there have been many explanations as to what happened. The Quran itself is not explicit on what happened. The verse, or oh, the, the the verse I've just started to. Um, read uh, to 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 recite um, continues, but it was made unclear to them. They did not kill him and they did not crucify him, but it was made unclear to them. Um, the Arabic there walaki in shubha lahum could be uh, into uh, could be translated into English as either it was made unclear to them that that would me, suggest that the whole event was made unclear, and they were not certain about what happened or it could be translated as um, but he was made unclear to them, uh, referring to the fact that Jesus was made unclear to them from quite an early stage in Islamic history, um, that was interpreted to mean that the person who was crucified was made unclear to those who crucified that person. And um, various uh, various suggestions as to who that person may have been uh, were made. Um, Very often, uh, the person who um, betrayed Jesus, Judas Iscariot, being identified as the as the man who was taken and crucified in the place of Jesus, um, so that departs completely from Christian understanding. As I was saying just now, in Christian understanding, uh, there is no doubt at all that Jesus was crucified on the cross, and died on the cross. He was taken from the cross, dead.
1: Thank you for for that. Um, How has this differing views um, between Muslims and Christians developed over time, and is this um, theological difference a source of tension between the two religions?
5: Well, the two completely depart on the ramifications, the the continuing understanding of the crucifixion. In Christianity, based very much upon the writings of the earliest Christians, including St. Paul, in Christianity the death of Christ is is seen as a decisive event in history. Um, Christ's death is interpreted by well, it's interpreted in so many ways by Christians, but it's interpreted by some as a demonstration as the self-giving love of God, that God was prepared to give God's self for humanity. Um, Paul, St. Paul, writes about it as a sacrificial death, a death that um, takes away human sinfulness and... Mm. Um, Instead, and so the, the the debt of sin is paid by Jesus Christ rather than individual humans, and that is why human uh, Christians would call themselves saved. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
5: Now, of course, in and, and so the death of Christ becomes a central event in uh, Christian history. For Muslims, because there was no death. Uh, that whole idea of jesus being a sacrifice or a representation of the love of god is uh, is 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 removed and of course the the whole issue moves on because christ while he is a very important prophet in islam is not the most important prophet um the the the, 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 the central attention obviously in islam is on the prophet muhammad himself
1: mm-hmm. right. and uh... For the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us about the crucifixion and the significance this has around the globe for different Christians?
5: Well, um, of course it has central significance. From what I've just said, it is um, a decisive event. It is a great turning event in the history of the world because in that event, um, Christians the vast majority of Christians believe that God is showing that he is for humanity. Um, the, the understanding at the time of Jesus and the understanding widely is that God can be seen as, um, a distant being, um, who is concerned with judgment. He is concerned with human sinning and is concerned that, um, If humans do sin and are sinners, they should be punished for what they have done. The understanding in Christianity is that that sense of sin, that sense of being sinful, um, is relieved, is removed by the death of Christ. Um, I may be a very bad sinner and I may feel really Um, horrible because of my conduct. And I want to say sorry. Mm -hmm. And it could be that I feel I can only say sorry by uh, performing actions, by doing things that will make up for that. But it will not take away that great sense of guilt The Christian understanding is that it is Jesus has taken away that sense of guilt. He himself, in his death on the cross, removes the sense of guilt from Christians. And Christians can say they are renewed, that they can start again, that they are not held down by the great weight of sin uh, that uh, is there, is part of the human human self-understanding. Um, Thank you for your
1: insight into this. Um, And lastly, do you think that there are any misconceptions related to the crucifixion of Jesus? And if so, um, could you please expand on them?
5: Well, um, of course, (laughs) there are many, many misconceptions, both within Christianity, I'm sure, and also outside Christianity. But coming back to where I started in this interview... Um, there is this direct uh, disagreement between Muslims and Christians as to whether the crucifixion was an event that involved Jesus and was an event in which Jesus was killed. Christians would say, yes, it was the man Jesus who was nailed to the cross and died on the cross. The Quran um, seems to be saying that it was not Jesus who was nailed to the cross. The Jews did not crucify him says um, Surah Anissa uh, verse 147. They did not crucify him. They did not kill him. So there is a direct disagreement uh, between Christian uh, scripture and Islamic scripture on that point.
0: Right. I think um, we've lost... Uh... Mr. Burnham, are you still there, Mr. Burnham?
1: I am, sorry. Um, I lost my connection for a second. Okay. Professor Thomas, this has been really enlightening. Thank you for your time this morning, and um, peace and blessing of Allah be with you, and, um, and have a good rest of your day.
5: All best wishes. Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: Right, we're coming uh, nearing uh, the close of this uh, broadcast. I just want to mention, just before we close the uh, uh, issue that we're discussing, that the Ahmadiyya community believes um, that uh, the crucifixion um, um, did take place, uh, uh, but uh, it did not take place successfully. Uh, Jesus did not die on the cross. Uh, when he was taken down from the cross, he was still alive, but only a state of swoon or unconsciousness. He was removed to the sepulchre uh, by his close friends and followers. Healing ointments and herbs mentioned in the Bible uh, were administered, uh, not for embalming, but administered. I mean, the amount that was used was could not have been for embalming. There was no tradition, Jewish tradition, for uh, that kind of administration. It was instead administered, administered for his wounds and he was restored to health. And the Amdi Muslim view is that he then traveled to the east in search of the lost tribes of Israel in fulfillment of his divine missions uh, and lived to a ripe old age and died and buried probably in, in Kashmir. So this is the Amdiya point on on this particular issue. So. Um, by mentioning that and bringing that item to a close, it also means that our uh, show is uh, very much approaching uh, to its uh, to a conclusion. It leaves me to thank those people who have been involved in uh, the production. Uh, the producer, Saqib Maneer Ahmed, is worthy of her gratitude, as is uh, his researchers, Hannah Ahmed, uh, Neha Latif, uh, Kutia Award, and Saliya Bakhtiar. Uh, must not forget mohammed Shafiq, who has been our engineer, making sure that everything has been running smoothly throughout this broadcast. So thank you to him as well. Thank you to our um, uh, experts uh, for enlightening us uh, with their expertise. We were uh, joined uh, by Dave uh, S- uh, Smithson, Operation Director of Anxiety UK. Also, we were joined by uh, Neil Shah, uh, uh, who's the stress management uh, or the chief of the uh, de-stressing a Chief distressing officer at Stress Management Society, Alison Pay, also joined us. She's the managing director of Mental Health at Work. Uh, and for uh, the uh, second part of the uh, of our program, we were joined by um, both uh, Professor David Thomas and Dr. Edward David. Uh, so thank you to them. Thank you to our listeners. Do join us again Monday to Friday, seven to nine, for the breakfast show. And here's the news.